When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. This is the word of the Lord. Just four months ago, we began this whole drama again with the Advent. Luke told us about shepherds abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, when suddenly an angelic chorus announced to them that the Messiah had been born. Matthew says there were magi, these studiers of the stars who live far to the east, who saw an unusually bright and unexplained light, which they followed all the way to Bethlehem and to a manger where they found Jesus of Nazareth. And they offered to him expensive presents, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Mark has none of that. He just starts his gospel with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Messiah, the Son of God. And from there he told us that Jesus was already a grown man, walked some 90 miles from his hometown down to the Jordan River right near Jericho, was baptized there by John, started home by way of the desert, was tempted as to what direction this ministry of his was to take, what had God sent him to do. Mark told us about miracle stories, people who were very ill, who were made well again. And then he said Jesus took the disciples up to an out-of-the-way place called Caesarea Philippi, and he asked, Who do the people now think I am? I heard one say the other day, You're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Really? I heard one say, You're Elijah the prophet who's come to announce the coming Messiah. Really? I heard one say, You're a great prophet. And who do you say I am? Simon jumped forward and said, I believe you're the Messiah of God. And Jesus said, Bless you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Petros, Peter, the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church. And then Mark told us that Jesus immediately began to tell the disciples how he would go south to Jerusalem. There suffer many things and be killed. Mark told us how it happened, that Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock on a Friday morning, that at 12 noon there was a great darkness over all the face of the land until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at which time Jesus cried with a loud voice and died, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. It was almost time for the Sabbath to begin, sundown on Friday. And so those who loved him and had managed to stay as close as possible to him 
saw permission to take his body down from the cross and bury it before sundown in the beginning of Sabbath. Pilate said, Be sure they are dead. Historians of the first century say it was not unusual for persons to hang on a cross for 24, 48, 72 hours before they died. It's excruciatingly painful, but not something that brought death so very quickly. They believe that as long as persons crucified could push themselves up enough to take another deep breath, they could live longer. So the legs were broken of the one on the left and the right. They were considering breaking Jesus' legs as well when someone decided he's already dead. But to be sure, they thrust a spear up into his side. He didn't flinch. He was dead. His body was taken down, buried in a new tomb, not quite finished, in which no one had ever been placed before, and then a huge stone rolled over the face. Sabbath began. It must have been a long 24 hours, 24 hours, for those who knew him, loved him, pondered what all of this meant. When the sun goes down on Saturday, in Jerusalem, the city comes back to life. Sabbath is over, shops open, these three women went to buy spices, so that the first rays of sunlight on the first working day of the week, Sunday for them, they could properly anoint the body. Let's look at Mark's account. First of all, early that Sunday morning they went, just as the sun was rising. And as they went, they pondered, how are we ever going to roll back that huge stone? Anthropologists study remains they have found, remains of dead people to say, how long have we honored our dead? How long have we tried to give some proper care to the bodies of people whom we loved? Some anthropologists say they can trace back 300,000 years to graves of multiple people where they believe somebody ceremoniously buried them. Other anthropologists say, no, we're not so sure about those 300,000-year-old piles of bones in one location, but 130,000 years before our time, surely 130,000 years ago, in Israel itself there are remains that have been unearthed 100,000 years old, ceremoniously buried, and that would be 96,000 years before Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, Rebekah, and the Jews started telling the world there's only one God. Eleven years ago, my father died. My mother, my sister and brother who are younger than I, looked to me. What kind of funeral should we have? What do you do at Boston Avenue? And so, when I got the call that my father had died, I'd been there just 24 hours before, I took a bulletin from a recent funeral here at Boston Avenue, and they did a Boston Avenue funeral. Eight weeks ago, my mother died. My sister and brother turned to me. Do you want to do a funeral like Dad's? I said, I don't think so. I think we should do a funeral the kind our mother has attended the last 70 years at the Rehoboth United Methodist Church. And they said, hymns from the hymn book? I said, yes. We all should sing? I said, yes. 
But you pick the hymns that you know our mother loved. I haven't worshipped there in 50 years. You have. You know the kind of hymns they sing when people die at Rehoboth United Methodist Church. Let's do that funeral. And that's what we did. Our two sons, Gail's and mine, my brother's two sons, my sister's two sons, those six big good-looking guys were the pallbearers. When we have funerals here at Boston Avenue, the funeral directors bring enough people to handle all the flowers. In that small town, the pallbearers did that job. They carried the casket, and then they also ferried the flowers from the church out into the cemetery. As we waited in the folding chairs under the tent, it was so cold, the funeral director put a blanket over our legs. I've been in that cemetery many times. When I was a boy, my grandmother used to take me by the hand and walk me through the cemetery. Sometimes right after church, before we would go to have lunch, sometimes just before the night service on Sunday, or the Wednesday night service, just as the sun was setting, everything was quiet and peaceful, she'd walk me through the cemetery. It wasn't a scary place. It was a wonderful place. She'd point out where my great-great-grandfather, great-great-grandmother were buried. They founded that little Methodist church all those years ago. His name was John Wesley Biggs. My great-grandfather, great-grandmother, all these distant aunts and uncles and cousins. Now my father's buried there and all five of his sisters. Our daughter, Allison, is buried there. Then my father, now my mother. It's a very special place. How do you honor your dead? How do you honor and celebrate the faith of those you've loved so very much? The faith of the church they attended. Okay. Number two, how will we ever roll away the stone? How will we ever roll away that huge stone? And suddenly they looked up and the stone had been rolled back. They peered into the tomb and they saw a young man dressed all in white. Ah, now you know why we have white lilies. We have white stoles. White is the color of Easter because white is the color of heaven. In the Bible, when people are transposed, like Jesus, Moses, Elijah, upon Mount of Transfiguration, they were so dazzlingly white that one of the Gospel writers says, whiter than anybody on earth could ever scrub that white. So obviously this having the stone roll back is God's work. This sending a young man dressed in dazzling white is God's work. They were terrified, the Bible says. Terrified. Oh, but that's not unusual, you see. If you read from Genesis to Revelation, whenever people find themselves in the presence of the Almighty, they're always terrified. God is awesome. The only thing worthy of the world word we believe, God is awesome. And we're supposed to stand in awe of God. We bring our needs into the presence of one so big and so powerful. You've heard me mention Mitch Album before. Um, I didn't know anything about Mitch Album's work as a sports writer in Detroit. It was only after Mitch Album was watching television one night with the old Newsline uh, program. <clears throat> Ted Koppel was interviewing a professor from Brandeis University. Mitch Album's professor. 
when he was graduated from Brandeis, Mitch Album had told this professor, his favorite one, I will come and see you often. He had never been back. And now the old professor was dying. He had ALS, we normally call Lou Gehrig's disease. His mind was as keen as ever, but his muscles were all shutting down. It would not be long until he would not be able to lift his hands, would not be able to swallow. He would probably drown in the fluids in his own lungs. Mitch asked his professor the next morning when he called him, may I come and visit you? He said, sure. So he flew into Brandeis University, visited with his old professor, and had such a wonderful time. He asked if he could come again. The professor said, sure. Tuesdays worked out best for Mitch, so he wrote a book after the professor's death called Tuesdays with Maury. It's a wonderful book. His most recent book is called Try a Little Faith. You see, Mitch grew up in a Jewish synagogue, I mean, attending regularly there. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was bar mitzvahed in that synagogue. But once he went off to college, he became non-observant. He flew home every fall to go to the synagogue with his parents for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, otherwise nothing. And on one of those occasions, this boyhood rabbi of his, now grown old, said, Mitch, you're a big man. I want you to give my eulogy when I die. And Mitch said, I've never done that before. Well, he said, I trust you. You can do it. And Mitch said, I don't really know you. I mean, I sort of know you, but I don't really know you. If you let me get to know you, we'll talk about it later. The rabbi said, that'd be fine. What did he suggest? And Mitch said, every time I'm in New York, I'll call ahead, see if it's a good time for me to visit you. I'll come over to New Jersey and visit you. And so that's what they did. And Mitch wrote a book, Try a Little Faith. Because he came again to an observant faith. The interesting thing apart about that book, though, is that he writes a chapter about his next visit with the rabbi and then a chapter about an African-American Christian preacher in Detroit who has served time in prison, who's battled alcohol and drug addiction, who's been in recovery for several years, is now pastoring in what once was a glorious old church that leaks like a sieve and that Mitch got to know, wrote about him in the Detroit paper, contributions came in, roof got fixed. Well, after the horrible earthquake in Haiti in January, Mitch was asked by this Christian congregation if he'd be willing to go down to Haiti with them. They have an orphanage down there. So he signed on to go. He said, when we got there, the little children, these precious black faces, would come running over to us and hug us because we had food and water and shelter. I saw five teenage boys, he said, lurking around the, the perimeter but not coming close. We'd been there several days and still they were just watching, watching. And finally one of them came over to me and said, you got music? And I said, I got music, just a little laptop computer. He said, I started playing them, my music. Had really thought about the fact that my music was all from the 1960s. I mean, we liked that we grew up with, you know. So I was playing on some really early Elton John. I was playing on some really early Beatles. They curled up their nose. And then I played them a song, The Four Tops, made popular in 1966. 
Now, if you don't know this is a boy singing a love song to a girl, you might hear what those five black teenagers heard in Haiti. These are the words they heard. Now, if you feel that you can't go on because all of your hope is gone and your life is filled with much confusion until happiness is just an illusion and your world around is crumbling down, reach out. Come on, reach out for me. I'll be there with a love that will shelter you. I'll be there with a love that will see you through. When you feel lost and about to give up because your life just ain't good enough and you feel the world has grown cold and you're drifting out all on your own and you need a hand to hold, reach out. Come on, reach out for me. I'll be there to love and comfort you. I'll be there to cherish and care for you. Reach out. Reach out. And he said one of the boys gave him a high five. And from then on, we were buddies, he said. And just before I got on an airplane to fly home, one of them asked me, Will you come back? Will you come back? Number three, I know who you're looking for, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified. He's not here. He's been raised. Dr. John Buchanan is pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. You remember when he came to give our Barton Clinton Gordy series. He's also editor of the Christian Century magazine now. He has one of the most beautiful Presbyterian churches in the United States. It's right on that miracle mile that Oprah Winfrey talks about. Dr. John Buchanan recently wrote a short editorial, his Christmas me uh, Easter message for those who read Christian Century magazine. He's talking about a young woman, Presbyterian preacher, in a suburb of Chicago. He said her congregation had just gone through a horrible, horrible experience. For some strange reason, one of the men who belonged to her church went home late in the afternoon, shot his wife to death, shot her son to death, shot himself to death. And a few days later, this woman, Presbyterian preacher, had to have the funeral for the mother and son. And she looked out at her congregation and said, when I was a girl growing up in a small Presbyterian church, we never said that line in the Apostles' Creed about he descended into hell. My pastor, she said, didn't like that line. So he had gone through every Presbyterian hymn book in our church and with a magic marker had blocked it out. Every, every hymn book. It was only when I was in college and seminary that I learned what that phrase means. He descended into hell. And this week, we've been there, she said. We've been there. Doesn't it help you, she said, to know that he was there before you? That Jesus descended into hell before you, and he has been raised. Number four. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to, to Galilee. He will be there as he told you. 
I have six really good commentaries on the Gospel according to St. Mark, and all six of them this week I read. Did you notice how Jesus singled out Peter? Other disciples, he singled out Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter that I will be there in Galilee, just as I told you. You see, the last time we heard from Peter in Mark's Gospel was at the house of Caiaphas. It was on Thursday night. Jesus had taken the disciples after the Passover meal out to an olive grove called the Mount of Olives near the olive press called the Gethsemane. He had taken his disciples to this quiet, peaceful place had asked them to pray for him, with him. He had taken three a little bit farther, Peter, James, and John, and asked them to pray. And then he had gone still farther into the olive grove, and he came back and found all the disciples asleep. And he said, couldn't you wake with me just a little while? Because he had been praying, oh God, not this cup, not this cup. Yet not my will but thine. He was arrested, taken to the house of Caiaphas, tried by the Jewish authorities, and the next morning taken to Pontius Pilate. But while this trial was going on in the house of Caiaphas, there were people in the courtyard outside by an open fire, warming their hands. And one woman looked at Simon and said, You're dressed like a Galilean. You were with him. He said, I was not. A little later, someone said, I believe I saw you with him. I believe I saw you with him earlier this week. I was not, he said. And when a third said, I believe you are one of his followers, Peter said, I don't even know him. And when he said it, Jesus was led out past him and their eyes met. Peter, who had said, though all the world forsake you, I will not ever Go tell Peter, there's another day coming. There's another day coming. Tell Peter. Every year we have lots of funerals here because we're a church 117 years old. One we had last year was for Margaret Muir Willis. She lived to her 86th birthday in December. Gail and I met Margaret the very first day. Mr. Armand Boss, chair of the Pastor Parish Relations Committee 30 years ago, led us up the north steps and into the church for the first time. Margaret was called a home visitor. She wasn't a clergy. She was a lay person. Margaret had two daughters and a son. Suddenly her husband had died when she was only 46, both of them 46 years old. Now she was a young widow with two daughters and a son. The church had hired her to give her a job, a job she did very well. She called on prospects. She called on homebound. And then, after being a widow 14 years, Howard Willis came into her life. She acted like she was 16 again. She was 60. 60 years old. I married the two of them. They went on honeymoon to Italy. She moved into Howard's pretty home. She drove his new Cadillac. She sang in this choir every Sunday. Every Sunday. She was right here. Those of you who come to the Barton Clinton Gordy series used to call her the cookie lady because she arranged for all those hundreds of cookies to get baked and people to be there pouring punch and, and Kool-Aid for you after the services. Then Margaret was battling cancer. 
the last big generous thing she did, she bought all new robes for this choir. And when she was no longer able to come, she watched on television and saw these beautiful robes and all these faces of people that she loved and knew very well. Just before Christmas, I got a call late one afternoon from her son, Scott, saying he thought his mother was very near death now. And I went out to the Methodist Manor into the Holloman Center. Scott walked me into her room. Her eyes were closed. He said, Mother. She opened her eyes. He said, Do you recognize this person? And she pointed at me and said, Dr. Tankersley. <laughs> Scott started to correct her, and she said, I know Dr. Biggs, Scott. I've known Dr. Biggs for 30 years. And he said, okay, and he went in the other room. I sat down in a chair and visited with her, but she didn't die. And then a few days later, I got a call late one afternoon from the hospice nurse who said, I think she's really close now. I said, I'll be right there. And I rushed out again, walked into her room. Her eyes were closed. I sat down quietly in that same chair and said, Margaret? She opened her eyes. I said, how are you doing, kid? And she said, I'm just waiting to fly away. I said, oh, you learned that old song when you were growing up in Arkansas, didn't you? She nodded her head. I said, I learned it when I was growing up down in Texas. Hold my hand. I held her hand and I sang, Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. And with the grace of God, she did. <laughs>